Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the show. This is your host, Bernice Bennett, and joining me is Miss Alilia Bundles, the author of On Her Own Ground, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker, about her great-great-grandmother. Renamed Self-Made for the 2020 edition, this biography is the inspiration for the four-part Netflix series starring Oscar winner Octavia Spencer that premiered on March 20th. So let me give just a warm welcome to Alilia Bundles to the show. Welcome back, Alilia. I am so glad to be joining you. I am too, and I'm telling you, I'm enjoying the book. So let's start off with what is fact? And what is fiction about the Netflix series? Many well. people are asking <laughs> about the, well, let me just say something. Many people are asking about the Addie Monroe character. There mm-hmm. also are characters like Esther and Sweetness who didn't exist and who were created by the script writer. So just tell us what's fact and what's fiction. Well, you know, I'd love to just start talking about On Her Own Ground. So the book that I wrote that came out in 2001, On Her Own Ground, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker, was more than 20 years of research, original documents and Walker Company records and personal letters between Madam Walker and her attorney and her daughter and visits to more than a dozen cities. And I know because you love genealogy, that you understand going through city directories and court records. So I did a huge amount of original research on Madam Walker, really writing the first uh, major comprehensive biography about her. That book stands on its own if there had never been a Netflix series. And in that book, I really try to trace her life from the plantation on Delta, Louis- in Delta, Louisiana, where she was born in December 1867, first child in her family, free, born, and through her move to St. Louis, where she joined her older brothers who were barbers, then the development of her business, moving to Denver and then Pittsburgh and then headquartering it in Indianapolis, and Alelia Walker's um, persuasion to her mother that they establish a uh, a foothold in Harlem in 1913. 
than Madam Walker dying at 51 in 1919 in her mansion in Irvington, New York, Villa Luaro, as a millionaire, a philanthropist, a political activist, a patron of the arts. So that's the core of On Her Own Ground and how she empowered other women, employed thousands of African-American women who otherwise would have been maids and sharecroppers and laundresses and created generational wealth. So that's the core of the story that I like to tell. My book was optioned by um, Mark Holder and of Wonder Street about four years ago. It had been optioned a few times earlier. I actually had – we'd had a conversation with, with Alex Haley in 1982 about a miniseries. So that's how far back we go in talking about taking Madam Walker's story to the big screen. But with this current iteration with the Netflix series – uh, in which I think Octavia Spencer does a fabulous job. I love seeing her in that role. I think she really embodies Madam Walker. But the script writers and the showrunners, the executives who make the decisions about what's going to be in and what's going to be out, had a really different vision than I did of what Madam Walker's life was about. And so they created... Um, the Esther character who didn't exist, the Sweetness character who didn't exist, and for me is problematic because he is a foil to F.B. Ransom, Madam Walker's attorney, who was very much a straight arrow and never would have bet on the numbers. And this also implies that there was illegal money that that helped to um, found the Walker company. You know, and then we get to Addie Monroe, Annie Malone. So I've gone on and on, but you know, if you, there's a specific question, and I can answer that, or I can continue talking about Annie Malone. Well, I really would like you to say something about the Addie Monroe character, and then say something about Addie Malone. Sure. So when the when I was involved, you know, engaged in this process, I. Um, was in the, the negotiation of the contract. You know, most of the time a writer writes a book and you allow the book to be optioned, a studio acquires it, and they really, this, the usual thing that happens is the writer is just excluded entirely. And that happens way, way too often. <laughs> and in my case, I had what was called script review, not script veto, not script approval, but that technically meant that I would be able to review the scripts. I had thought that I would be able to have conversations as the story was being outlined and fashioned and as conversations were happening with the studios, but the script writer and showrunners excluded me from that process. That was their choice to do. Once it was already outlined, uh, I was able to read the scripts as they were being written. And when I read the first treatment and I saw the originally Annie Malone character, I was shocked. And early on, I had had a, a year and a half earlier than that, I'd had a conversation with the head writer, Nicole Jefferson, and this was our one phone call, and she talked about centering the conflict between Annie Malone and Madam Walker. And I 
said, really in thinking I was having a casual conversation, I said, well, you know, I think Annie Malone is definitely a character who could be included in a series, but for me, she's not the centerpiece of Madam Walker's life, and I don't think they're the centerpiece of each other's lives, and, and I personally wouldn't make that the centerpiece of the story. So that was my comment. And then I did not talk with Miss uh, Jefferson for more than a year after that. And when I saw the treatment um, of the series, the outline, I saw that she had, in fact, made that the centerpiece of the story. And mm-hmm. then I, my understanding from comments that she has made to other reporters is that she and the showrunners really wanted to create a composite character, so they changed the name to Addie Monroe, and they wanted to, among the themes they wanted to include was colorism, and so they made this Addie Monroe character a very light-skinned woman, when, as we know, Annie Malone was not a light-skinned woman, and then she becomes kind of a villain who follows Madame Walker to Indianapolis, which, of course, didn't happen. In On Her Own Ground, because I did a tremendous amount of research about Annie Malone in the 1990s before other people were really writing very much about her because there are not a whole lot of records about her, uh, I always have talked about her as a very successful entrepreneur and a philanthropist. So what would you have done, let's say, differently in telling the story? Well, I would have had uh, some of the women who truly were Madam Walker's mentors, women like Jessie Batts Robinson, who was a school teacher in St. Louis, who also was a member of St. Paul AME Church, who was a, in the leadership of the Court of Calanthe, the Women's Auxiliary of the Black Knights of Pythias, and who really was a mentor to Madam Walker when she was still Sarah Bree Love, a washerwoman, a poor washerwoman in St. Louis who remained a lifelong friend who eventually became the um, manager of the Walker Beauty School in St. Louis and who was one of those people in her life who began to give her a vision of herself as something other than a washerwoman, who showed her about women's organizations. And many of the women, Madam Walker at that point, Sarah B. Love, was a member of her choir at St. Paul AME. She was in the Missionary Society, even though she was a poor woman, and the National Association of Colored Women met in her church in 1904, and she saw the example that those organized, nationally organized club women um, were displaying, and she modeled her own 1917 convention on that organization and I would have emphasized a lot more her political involvement, her mm-hmm. support of the anti-lynching movement, not through a character like Sweetness, but but because her, her brothers and her family minister had been chased out of Louisiana by the Ku Klux Klan in 1879. I would have con- included a lot more about her philanthropy um, and her arts patronage. I would have included a lot more music because... When she and her daughter lived in St. Louis, Ragtime was being born. She was in the choir. Their church, their minister, I mean, their uh, organist and choir director in the church was a classically trained tenor. So I would have shown that. And I would have shown 
rather than showing trying to show white businessmen investing or black businessmen um, thwarting her, I would have shown the black men in business who supported her and the bo- black political figures who supported her. Mhm, mhm. And then one of the things they they didn't say a lot about was her early beginnings. I mean, I knew. I mean, I, you could see that she was a washerwoman, but about her parents, about uh, what was her life before she became Madam C.J. Walker. Mhm. You know, and I think that when you think about this, I mean, there are things that. I, as a journalist and as a biographer, I've written a book that's 270 pages long with almost 100 pages of end notes. So obviously in four, <laughs> four 45-minute um, episodes, you can't have everything. And so they make choices about what they're going to include and what they're going to exclude. Originally, this was supposed to be a 10-part series. So perhaps in 10 parts, they would have had time to develop those other things, though if Annie Malone, if the conflict, the cat fight between Annie Malone and Madam Walker was going to be the centerpiece of the story, it still was going to be the centerpiece of the story. But it, with 10 episodes, there would have been more time to develop her childhood. and so. But that's not what happened. It ended up being four parts. Right. So now I want to get back to your book, On Her Own Ground, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker, and the fact that the book was renamed Self-Made to tie in with the series. So what's different between the 2001 and the 2020 editions? Right. So in order for my my publisher is Scribner, which is a division of Simon & Schuster, And like all publishers, of course, when you have a Hollywood movie or a series, they're like, this is going to be an opportunity to reintroduce the book. And in order to use Netflix's name on the cover of the book, the Netflix required um, my publisher to rename the book temporarily. So there also is an edition with the same name that's also out, and when those books that are named self-made are sold, then we'll go back to uh, On Her Own Ground, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker. But the difference is it has the beautiful picture of Octavia Spencer on the cover, <laughs> which you know, which I love. I have written a new epilogue for the book because a lot mm-hmm. has happened in the 20 years since the book came out. There are all kinds of Madam Walker initiatives and artists who have done Madam Walker's work and a stamp and you know many many other things that have happened and I wanted to give people a sense of the last 20 years and how Madam Walker's the seeds that were planted with the book and before the book how those things have blossomed. I've also made some corrections in the book. I think anybody who if you write a newspaper article the next day you might have a correction. Well, if you write a book with 270 pages, there are a few things that you might not have gotten right and that or you've had new research, and I have learned more as I'm writing a new book, a biography of Alelia Walker called The Joy Goddess of Harlem, and I've done another couple of decades, really, of research. I've learned more about my grandmother's biological family. Of course, my grandmother, May, was adopted by Alelia Walker. So I've learned about her origin, their original connection to her family through her uncle who lived in St. Louis. 
One of the other corrections that I made, and, and when I finished the book, I knew from, because we have almost 50,000 documents from Madam Walker's company and her personal letters. So we're able to write things in a way that most people aren't able to write about women and people of color who had businesses in the early 20th century. So I have, as they say, the receipts. But when I wrote the book, I knew that the value of her personal effects, her real estate, her jewelry, her cars, her homes, was somewhere between six hundred dollars and $700,000, so shy of a million. And when I was out talking about the book, I happened to be at a business school, and a business school professor said to me, you know you have really underestimated her wealth because the value of her company, you did not calculate that. And, in fact, when I looked at the annual reports for the last two years of her life and the year after her life, the sales were between four hundred and $600,000, so that if she had sold the company on the day of her death, the value of the company would have been at least between $1 and $2 million. So I have revised my estimate of her personal wealth. So are you saying that the book self-made with the Netflix cover is a limited edition book, or is well, this it, it, book going it, to be yeah, available? I mean, it, it, no, the, yes, the book The book will, what, what I have written in this new book with the self-made cover is also going to be, and also is in the new edition of the book that's also called um, on her own ground. So so what okay. I wrote a book on her own ground in 2001. I have done a revised 2020 edition and there are two covers, but it's the same content. So one cover for a limited time is called Self-Made. The original title On Her Own Ground: The Life and Times of Madam Walker is also published with exactly the same content as the new edition with the self-made title. But eventually, once the self-made title sells out because of the tie-in with the movie, the original title with the new content will still be available. I got it. Okay. So let's talk about your next project. Mm -hmm. What's happening with that? (laughs) So The Joy Goddess of Harlem, Alelia Walker and the Harlem Renaissance, really excited about this book because one of the things what my experience as I was writing and doing research about Madam Walker for On Her Own Ground is that most of what people knew about Madam Walker was either incorrect or really insufficient. <laughs> so, you know, I am certainly old enough to remember that what if you would mention Madam Walker's name 20 years ago, most people would say, oh, she's the woman who invented the hot comb. So, That's right. no, she did not <laughs> invent the hot comb. And, but mm-hmm. it has taken, you know, I, most, very few people still say that, but that was most of what people said then. And now I have been able to show that she is a much more multidimensional person, that she's a pioneer of the hair care industry and a philanthropist and patron of the arts and you know, all of these other things that she knew, Ida B. Wells and Booker T. Washington and W.B. Du Bois. But the paragraph that always turned up, to the extent that there were any books that mentioned black people in history, that was sort of all that people knew. And that was, you know, just the, it's like, you know how George Washington cut down the cherry tree. I mean, a lot of times, history is so poorly taught in most American (laughs) schools. That we don't know, which is why genealogy is so important, because it helps us center our stories 
in the American history narrative and helps us reframe that narrative. So what I did with, in, with my research on Madam Walker, and now four books later on Madam Walker, I was able to reframe the story of her with facts. I was not making anything up. I, I am strictly a fact-based person because I'm a journalist. I spent 30 years in network television news as a, as a producer and, ex, and an executive. So I am all about if you can't document it, I don't put it in my book. So I did that with Madam Walker's story. Now with the Lilia Walker story, what I realized is that many people, people love the Harlem Renaissance. And many people have written about it, but she usually ends up in the same paragraph that that basically gives the message, Madam Walker made the money, Alelia Walker spent the money, she had parties during the Harlem Renaissance, the end. And that is not exactly the truth. Nobody is that pathetic and two-dimensional. And what <laughs> I have covered uh, during this you know, last couple of decades of research is that she very much was a patron of the arts. I mean, a couple of writers and whose work I generally respect on other things that they've written about wrote um, she had an attention span of seven minutes, she didn't really read books, and she really didn't contribute anything uh, to the artists and writers of the Harlem Renaissance. So that, none of that is true. Um, she didn't talk to people she didn't like, so maybe somebody they talked to she didn't have much to say to because she didn't want to, but it was a choice. Um, I know that she loved books because I have her library and I have letters where she, that she's written to people saying, thank you so much for the book. You know, this is my favorite kind of gift. And, you know, and I know that she supported uh, black artists, musicians, writers, and actors. And she hosted the first uh, show for Augusta Savage, the very well-known African-American sculptor. So I am trying to reframe the story, and it is it is very true that she was not as much, she was not as driven as her mother in business, but she did work uh, closely with her mother early on, and I think her ability to persuade her mother that they needed to have a presence in Harlem when she at that point was still running the Pittsburgh office made a huge difference in why they're still remembered. She persuaded her mother in 1913 to buy a building in Harlem, which was then redesigned by Vertner Tandy, the first licensed black architect in New York and one of the founders of Alpha Phi Alpha. That put them in the center of Harlem just as it was becoming the cultural and political mecca for black America. So that meant they were written about in all the black newspapers and any and in the New York Times and in anything that anybody else was writing about what was going on in Harlem. So I think that is a key factor in them being remembered more than some of their competitors. Well, one of the things that I I did notice from the Netflix is the, the the marketing. And so tell us about the advertisements that were shown or maybe not shown in the movie to really get the word out about the uh, hair growing products that Madam C.J. Walker was selling. I, I'm so glad that you mentioned that. Um, she really was a marketing genius and I think she absorbed a lot of what was going on from those women of the National Association of Colored Women. They were very persuasive. And as you know, 
many of the women who became presidents of that organization or who were in leadership roles had been in the leadership roles of the AME Church, the Baptist Church, and many had been educators. Some had gone to Oberlin. Many had traveled internationally. So she saw what they were doing, but she also knew that, that her origin story was very persuasive to other women. She had been a poor washerwoman, a widow, an orphan, and yet she had been able to find some success. And so as she began to market her she put her own image on her product container. That was huge, revolutionary for a black woman to have that kind of confidence to put herself on the packaging when there were white companies trying to market to black women who put um, Gibson white-looking Gibson girls on their packages. She used a before and after picture in her ads and with her hair falling out and then a picture with a you know full mane of hair and then testimonials which were you know advertising was really still in its infancy as an industry but two things that stuck out for me is that she was always about not just about the hair care products but about pendants so one letter said um, before I started using Madam Walker's wonderful hair grower my hair was an eighth of an inch long and now my hair is down my back and I have been able to throw my wig away but another woman said to her, uh, you have made it possible for a colored woman to make more money in a day selling your products than she could in a month working in somebody's kitchen. So wow. that was, you know, she knew how to relate to women because she had been in their shoes. Right, right. And then how many women uh, were you able to identify that were her agents and were out there selling her products. You know, it is a that's a very squishy number because you will read in company literature that they train 10,000, 20,000, 40,000 and then of course in Annie Malone's literature you'll read 10,000, 20,000, 60,000, 100,000. I I actually think both probably exaggerated quite a bit because when you look at the census for 1900, 1910 and 1920 and the number of people who identify themselves as hairdressers there aren't that there aren't nearly that many so mm-hmm. somebody was somebody was exaggerating but she <laughs> she did literally train thousands of women and she traveled all over the united states um central america and the caribbean she was on the road most of the year and she would go from town to town she'd take out ads before she arrived in a town she had arranged with the the large church or the, uh, you know, assembly hall, and she would do lectures. Another part of her great marketing, she had something that was like a PowerPoint presentation called a stereopticon that had glass slides that were projected onto a wall. And her first lecture would be about current events and education and black business, and then she would assemble a smaller group of 10 to 12 women perhaps in the church basement and demonstrate her products and talk about what it meant to be an agent. And she could identify the woman who asked the best questions and who the other women gravitated towards, who had charisma. And she'd make that woman her lead agent. So, you know, she was doing that kind of thing and really identifying who was going to be uh, a person who she could, who, who the leaders were. 
And did you find in your research that any of the women would attribute their success to working with her? Oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, and I think that's true for Madam Walker and Annie Malone and um, Sarah Spencer Washington, who founded the Apex Company, and a number of other people who had founded companies before any of them in the mm-hmm. 1890s, that being able to have an independent income made a huge difference for an African-American woman who otherwise, you know, the only jobs you were going to get hired for was to be somebody's maid or somebody's cook or to be a sharecropper and to be able to, especially as people were moving to cities, have a job where you didn't have to go work in somebody else's home, where you could be at home doing hair, selling products with your children or, you know, perhaps having a beauty shop. So women... You know, when you even now, people will tell me, my great aunt. I found the diploma for my grandmother, my great grandmother, who was a Walker agent, and she was able to pay our tuition to school, uh, to buy real estate, to to invest in real estate, and really to create generational wealth. So uh, there's definitely um, a connection between the seeds that Madam Walker planted and people who feel that they were able to become financially independent as a result of their connection to the Walker Company and a a great deal of pride of working for the company. Yes. So tell us, what are your other Madam Walker projects? So there are so many. <laughs> I feel like I feel like Madam Walker's having a moment. So she died 101 <laughs> years ago in May of 1919 in Irvington, New York. So there is now a, a line of Walker products, MCJW, MCJW, sold at Sephora.com. And the Walker Company actually never went out of business, but it really was kind of a really small operation after the mid-80s, the mid-80s through about 2013. Um, My family had been involved up until the mid-80s, along with the family of F.B. Ransom, her attorney, and that the trademark was sold to another company. They operated it for about 30 years, but really had not, were not a major player in the black hair care industry. And then Richelieu Dennis, who was the founding CEO of Sundial Brands, purchased the trademark and relaunched a line of new formulas with MCJW at Sephora. Richelieu, as some people you know, may recognize his name, uh, he, the company Sundial also makes Shea Moisture and Nubian Heritage. And when oh, yes. he mm-hmm. sold that trademark to Unilever a couple of years ago, he still remains involved with the company, but he used some of the proceeds from that sale to buy Essence and Essence Festival and to create the New Voices Fund, a $100 million venture capital fund for women of color entrepreneurs, and then created a foundation that now owns Madam Walker's home, Villa Lawaro. So that's very exciting because some of the people who go through the New Voices Fund training with as with incubators will be able to convene at the house. So that's one national historic landmark. There also in Indianapolis is the Madam Walker Legacy Center. That was the headquarters of the company from 1927 until the 
um, mid-1980s, and it is uh, just has undergone a $15 million renovation. And it's scheduled to have a grand reopening in June. I don't know with COVID-19 whether that will happen on time, but sometime this year. And there also is a wonderful exhibit at the Indiana Historical Society in Indianapolis that will be open until January with artifacts from the Madam Walker Collection and um, actors who are reenacting Madam Walker's office in 1915. So those are just some of the things. There are artists who have created interesting Madam Walker's Madam Walker work. Sonia Clark is one in particular who's done some great big installations and smaller exhibits, but an, a, a small um, quartet, classical quartet, is cre- has composed something about Madam Walker. So there's just there are tons of things that are going on, oh, and exciting things, very exciting things. And you know, one of the things is to you say 101 years ago, right. She's here today. <laughs> she's, yes, she's walking with I you think right so. now. Yeah, yeah, and, and you're standing on her shoulders. So what else well, would you like people to know about Madam Walker before we close out today? Well, you know, I actually, what, what you were just saying, that I have really worked on this, you know, literally for 50 years. I wrote my first report really about Alelia Walker when I was a senior in high school in 1970. But I have, I'm hoping that what I have done can inspire other people to do the same thing for their family members. Everybody's mm-hmm. family is interesting. I just finished reading Sarah Broom's The Yellow House about New Orleans, your hometown. And it is such an incredible excavation and reconstruction of a family. And it's a, you know, this would be an everyday family, but these are everyday people whose stories are worth telling and who are strong characters and who represent a city and who represent a people. And everybody's family has something interesting. And those of us who do genealogy find little tidbits, and those little tidbits can create a story that other people will be interested in. That's right, and right before we started the show, we were talking about uh, don't throw away, <laughs> don't throw <laughs> away letters and papers and information about your family members. Tell the story, leave that legacy. They've left the legacy by leaving these documents, so you should take it forward and tell that story. There is a, there is a scene in the Yellow House where Sarah Broom is talking to her mother, and even after Katrina. Her mother had saved the birth certificates and the military papers and those kinds of things. So they, she says, you know, her mother said, these are things that tell our family story. Without them, we don't have any proof. That's right. That's right. And just as you said, all the documentation concerning Madam C.J. Walker is included in your endnote. And so one of the things that I have taken away from from just your research is that you did do research. I mean, <laughs> this is not fiction. <laughs> this is right. real. And and that's the value of of talking to someone like you that has taken it to the next level and written the story. And you've shared a beautiful story about your great-great-grandmother. And her name will continue to resound, and we know who she is. And 
everything else we need to know, we'll find out about it in your book. So I want to just thank you so much for joining me today. And everyone, I have the website for Alilia. Uh, it's, it's located on the announcement for the show. So why don't you check out her website and also check out her book. Alilia, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Bernice. My pleasure. Okay. Bye-bye.